This is Bruce. This is John. This is Trav. This is Paul. Welcome to the TriTech Games Podcast. Your podcast of looking back at what we have did and saying we're really sorry. We're going to do better next time. <laughs> it's our New Year's resolutions episode. We're going to basically start out and say, looking back over our gaming experience over the past year, what we've done at conventions, what we've done in our own lives, the marriages that have failed, the children we've abandoned on the side of the road, on our ever upward trek of becoming the greatest GMs and game designers that have ever lived. Maybe that wasn't such a good idea. We should do things differently <laughs> this year. <laughs> yeah. You've already heard the episode where Richard was talking about you know, what, what's going to come next, but this one we're pre- going to talk about what's gone in the past and what we're planning on doing differently or better. More of the same, but, you know, less suck, as Joss Whedon would say. (laughs) Yep, yep, yep. So in the past year, we've gone to a lot of conventions, including Gen Con and Dragon Con. And Dragon Flight. And Dragon Flight. Other than producing the podcast... I mean, have we actually published something in the year 2013? Was Cloisters 2012 or 2013? Oh, I want to say that would be 2012. Oh, let's go to the website and see what it says. Wasn't one of the Portals books, wasn't that 2013? Portals Book 4 was released, wasn't it? Right. It is out? Okay, I have to get my copy from Richmond. <laughs> 45-minute drive for me, folks. Don't be haters. (laughs) There's also the miniatures that they've done. And we have done work on the new Savage World Edition. But for a lot of people in our group, this has been a, a year of consolidation where we've really sat down and tried to hammer out what differences there are in the gameplay between the D20 Modern and Savage Worlds. There's been a lot of uh, actual play episodes, John, with you doing it with the Sunday Skypers. So even though we haven't produced a lot of tangible product in the way of a new book or something like that, I think we've done a lot of development in these types of areas. Yeah, we've been rocking the R&D, yes, folks. Right. So And, of course, we've been doing a lot of support on the uh, Facebook pages. Oh, yeah. We're always trolling out there. Uh, is is that the right term? Not trolling, trawling, trawling. We're always trawling out there for uh, someone else to bring in the fold, like we did, Paul. Yep. If you write enough questions, you end up working here. <laughs> and in 2013 was the year in which we lost Amber. Yeah. But but she's doing okay. 
Yeah, she's doing fine. I, she didn't die, no, but I'm just saying. Talk to Pip about once a week via text or Facebook or whatever. She's doing okay. She just had an attack of life. She's on indefinite hiatus. She's not off the podcast mm-hmm. and leaving a hub. She, she misses us. It's just life sort of took her and shook her like a fresh glow stick. So Pip's doing okay because, as I said, she's another one. She lives about 45 minutes from me. So she's cool. But, yeah, she had to just step back for a while. That and some revelations by Richard really shook up things. Yeah. Well, that, that podcast was a big surprise to a lot of us, even some of us who've been like around for 35 years with Richard. <laughs> I get the feeling that Richard's trying to put a bow on Fringeworthy. Yep. It looks like the bow's going to come out in Portals 5. You heard that here first, folks, folks. Instead of it being the open-ended game that it's always been, I think Richard's trying to close it in, actually put a storyline on it, which is something that hasn't been there for a long time, if ever. Outside of his own mind, of course, because, you know, it's uh, anything in any published version. Well, yeah, Rich and I talk at cons because if I go to a local con with him, I make sure to help him, if not set up, then at least break down and get stuff in his truck. So he and I talk, and yeah, Portals 4 and Portals 5, folks, yeah. If you guys like the game, or if you like the concept of the game... Portals 4 and Portals 5 are definitely products that you're going to want to get. Oh, yes. Because they literally are going to be laying out a cornucopia of worlds, really great stuff, storylines. And since I haven't seen it, I can't really tell you. The one thing we noticed with the new Portal books he put out, he went away from this kind of templated, you know, here's another world with uh, swamps to something that was much, well, much more literary much more story-driven, much more imaginative as far as create painting a picture uh, in people's minds as they read it. So I think that the pro- it was a big improvement in the direction he went, but it's also uh, part of his overall plan, I think, to bring a, uh, a story back to Fringeworthy as a game. Uh, Portals 3 basically, and again, it was still funny when I'm reading it and yeah, this guy is a fringe explorer, and he's divorced, and he has a daughter named Shelly. Really, Rich? Really? Um, when I read it, I noticed that because the first two Portals books, they were I-debt form, you know, okay, this is the prime, and these are the alternates, and this is the distinct information. Portals 3 was made to be sketchings and ramblings of this reporter who was out with the fringe team, so it wasn't as formal. Is a blog, frankly. Yeah, thank you. I'm sure he'll continue that with 4 and 5, but I've gotten to see the pre-production stuff for Portals 4, and the side text on Portals 3, the stuff that Jack Schmidt was writing, there's a similar feel in 4. The fluff text is very mm-hmm. similar to how Portals 3 was laid out. Yeah, the crunch is way down in these books. It's it's a lot more fluff, but the fluff is what makes the games fun to play. Well, yeah, Rich has try, been yeah. trying to get away from the crunch for years. Remember, he's trying to make everything systemless, which is fine because a good mm-hmm. game master will just plug in the, the mechanics and go from there. So Right. Yep. Going back to our original premise for this podcast episode, resolutions for the new year, anybody want to throw one out that they're going to do? Being too easy... On my players, sometimes I'll I'll be you know I'll throw up against some sort of critter or some sort of group and well 
I won't take advantage of that. That they may be maybe outgunned or outmatched. Even though I created the critters to be just that, I tend sometimes I just want to you know hold back a little bit. So I've been trying to learn. Don't fall in love with the player's characters. If a character has to die, then a character has to die. You know, not pull punches. This last adventure I ran for Weird Zone, where yeah, they've been taking their hits and. One of the characters got knocked, got hit by a truck uh, on purpose. He actually stood up and said, I'm not getting all the way to the truck. So, yeah. See, that just chalks up to the player going, okay, yeah, you're going to do something stupid. You're going to pay for it. Yeah. Yeah. He got a fate point for it, though. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I figure, okay, if you go stay out and get in the way of a truck, yeah, I'll give you a fate point for that. Bam, there you go. <laughs> got to get something for your trouble. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Dude. You just took a truck to the face. <laughs> How'd I do? You shouldn't have hit your face so many times with yeah. that truck. The truck's grill is now your grill. They actually enjoyed it. They said it was, you know, we had a little hiatus because of the, of the uh, holidays, and they, and they actually, you know, really enjoyed the fact that, they, hey, this is one that's right, right in our face. So I got to remember to do that some more. So you're ramping the challenge up is what you're saying. Yeah, ramping and not pulling back. Because I'll ramp the challenge up and then, uh, you know, pull it back a little bit. You feel bad because you're like, oh, sorry, I didn't mean to, yeah. I like that character. I don't want to kill it off. That's our problem, you know? When you fall in love with your player's characters. Oh, okay. Anybody else? Oh, let's see. My GM resolutions for the year. I run three separate campaigns. Space Chase, Maze World, and my new one, Escape from the Coptics. Or, okay, a little more prep time to the other two campaigns because Maze World has become my focus. Me and my co-GM, Gina, Perky Goth from my, my show, we devote every Monday night, five hours, six to 11, and we're plotting out four or five game sessions into the future. And it's a bi-weekly game, Sunday afternoons. And so I'm finding out that I'm scurrying to do the stuff for Escape from the Coptics, and even less time for Space Chase, which Space Chase, if you know, it's the original name for Farscape, and it's basically Farscape meets Eberron. Um, so my resolution is to devote equal amounts or at least more prep time to the other two so they're not falling by the wayside because I also have a couple of campaigns that I run at cons probably another three the Guadrian Ambassadors the Alex Rabier campaign with my fellow DJ Breakman Z and now the Fringes of Galerion which I ran at PyCon and at Gen Con this past year so I got three full time campaigns and then three campaigns at cons I need to stick to setting aside prep time going, okay, I need to prep for this game for this week. Okay, I have a con coming up in a month. I have to prep. I was supposed to convert the Guathrian Ambassadors characters from 3.5 to Pathfinder on my vacation in mid-December, and I didn't do it. The only reason why I've got leeway now time because the next con that's coming up for me, Confusion, I'm dropping out. I can't afford to go. So I have now until PenguinCon in April to get these characters converted. But I, my thing, I need to sit down and say, okay, I'm working on this campaign tonight. I need to get this plotted out for 
the next game that's coming up. Either it could be in a week or in three months. I need to commit to giving my other campaigns not the same level of attention as Maze World because that's a very intense campaign. The amount of research that Gina and I do are, is ridiculous for it because we're dealing with mythologies and technology and history. And I just need to put more of that Maze World fervor into Space Chase, Escape from the Coptics, um, Guadrian Ambassadors, The Fringes of Galarian. I just need to devote more time to the rest of my games. As far as prep goes, that's my resolution for as a game master in 2014. Just spread the game prep love a little. For a while there, I was running three different games, and it was trying, yeah, juggling between three different games and try to keep things straight, even when some of the games like every other week. It's still, it's a lot of work. Oh, yeah, I've got Space Chase Friday nights, and then the following Sunday night is Maze World. And alternating Saturdays, the opposing Saturdays, is Escape from the Coptics. And I dropped out of hosting and running games here at my place after eight years to do the Coptics game. So I basically you know, dumped out of the, the gaming group that I was with for eight years to run this new Coptics game. It's almost like I hardly play anymore. I mostly, like 99% of the time, I'm game mastering. So yeah. That's why I, I need to devote more time to prep if I'm going to be running all these games. Sounds like one of those two needs to become an every other weekend game as well. Well, no, all three of them are. It's just the Friday and Sunday game. Space Chase and Maze World are on the same weekend. The Saturday in between them is an off day. And then the opposing Saturday is when I'm gaming every weekend. It's just on one weekend's Friday and Sunday, the next one is Saturday, then Friday and Sunday, then Saturday. That's what it is. I just need to devote more prep time to it, sit down and say, okay, tonight, working on this game. All right. In my case, I have a lot of stuff going on. Always in the background, of course, there's the work that I do for a living. And that's going to be ramping up again because the project that was canceled is about to be respawned. So I have to basically get a lot of stuff done fairly quickly before that happens. I have two games that I run. I run Fringeworthy on Altering Sundays, and I run a weekly game of Hardwired Hinterland. Last year, we went through a lot of different Savage Worlds campaigns, uh, and I got to play, which was great because I almost never get to play. I'm one of those guys who's been perennially, and I mean perennially, a GM for 35 years. So I got to play a while, and, and none of these games are really working for me, though the, I did kind of like the Dead World one. I'm not Dead World. Um, it was the, 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 old, the Old West. Deadlands? Deadlands game. That was kind of fun because I got to play basically like a mad scientist running around firing a, a lightning gun in the middle of the Old West. That was kind of cool. But unfortunately, that game didn't continue. Uh, we went on to other things. So, and I finally ran Hardwire Hinterland, and they all, and that's when everyone said, "Oh yeah, we like this game." So here I am, the GM now again, which is fine. Uh, I'm having a good time doing it. I'm actually running the campaign that I suggested in our podcast for Hardwire Hinterland, and that's been working out very well. The players seem to be really enjoying just traveling around and doing stuff. They, they're creating a lot of their own side tricks, which means that every time I create a big, long, put a lot of work into creating a, a story arc, it's usually 
I find that I didn't have to hurry so much because they're going somewhere else that I expected them. Which brings me to what I really need to do, which is I've been trying to make more interesting NPCs for them to run into, more fleshed out ones. I've been fairly successful in that. The problem I'm having, I've had in the past, is I don't have a tendency not to write down enough information about those NPCs, so that later on when we when they come back to them, I'm like, oh yeah, what was his personality and what was his stuff and what was his shtick? And so I need to get better at my documentation of the NPC characters that are in my, especially my Hardwired Hinterland campaign. Especially the names. Well, yes. Remembering names is really important. <laughs> you know, just making them interesting and making them different, giving them their own reasons for existing rather than them doing nothing when the, N- the PCs aren't there. The, the, the biggest benefit to tabletop role-play games is that you don't have to be like computer games where the, they literally have no existence outside of the characters running into them in the video game. They don't do anything afterwards. But in a role-playing game, especially a tabletop role-playing game, that's something that you can really do. So therefore, I really want to promote that. So that's one of the big things that I have is to go and do that, do better documentation of my NPCs so that I can play them much more vividly and effectively. I tend sometimes I'll have a few named NPCs, then I'll create ones on the spur of the moment. And they're the ones I really need to document sometimes because they turn out to be the ones they, they spend more time with than the ones I actually created beforehand. I made all these promises about transcribing some of the podcasts for the purpose of, of putting them into the new uh, Savage Worlds edition of Fringeworthy. And I haven't done that. I've been too busy doing other things, enjoying myself playing a, a few video games. Mostly I've been just doing other stuff. So I need to get onto that and actually deliver on my promise to do so since that's you know that's the kind of people we like to have at Tritac are people who actually deliver on their promises. So that's one of my resolutions is to actually go and do that transcribing that I promised. Uh, John knows and uh, it's hard for me to find time to do that when I spend six hours plus every week editing the podcast. But that doesn't change the fact that I made the promise, so I should make good on it. But you won't see me shaking a finger at you because if I did, I'd have to shake it at myself too. So No, I want to shake my finger at you, John. I, I would like Savage Worlds Edition to be out before Richard invalidates all the stuff we put into the, the game so far. He's already done that in Portal 4. No, not yet. We still have a window of opportunity to produce the Savage World Edition of Fringeworthy before he comes in and, and takes a big trowel and changes the whole face of it. I would like that done before he does that. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, John, if you don't, Bruce might get his choice of finger that he gets to point at you. <laughs> My hand would be there right next to his, you know, with that f- with the same finger <laughs> at myself. When I start uh, dropping transcripts of episodes on you, John, I'm going to be shaking my finger at you because then I'm not going to be guilty anymore. If you start dropping transcripts on me, I would start, I'll start taking them and adapting them to the, to the rules. Well, if you want to publish before I do that, that's okay with me, John. Paul, I, you've been kind of quiet. Any resolutions to do in the coming year? Well, I have two. Following along in your vein of completing things we said we'd do, uh, I still have the Victorian's equipment I owe John, and I just haven't found 
the, the reference material I like. It's easy to find American and Canadian catalogs. I'm having a hard time finding British ones from the 1880s, 1890s. I'm not British. I don't. I don't know what those places are. I can tell you. You know, here we've got Montgomery Wards and Sears. Only thing I can think of in in the UK is Harrods, and that's it. I know a person to ask. Let me ask him. It's a Marcus Rowland. He's the person. He's the creator of, of Forgotten Futures, and he lives in Old Blighty. Just need the catalogs. I mean, I find stuff like here's a page, but it's like, well, this company doesn't exist anymore, and there's only this one scan. What's been a really great source has been that Evanian collection. It was put out by the British Library. Yeah, it's unfortunately it's not it's not tagged, so you have to search through every picture. Oh God, it's the worst search engine ever. That's that's one of those major reasons that's driving me nuts. You'll type in clothing, and you get movie tickets. I don't understand who created this database at all. It feels like it's a database, but I'm using the wrong language. I don't know. Well, they're scanning in every document they have, page by page, by article by article, and and they're not tagging them. Exactly. I go looking for clothing, and I get. I get movie tickets and theater announcements, and they're all great material if you're forming a game. But when you're trying looking for specific, it's the most frustrating thing ever. Trouble is, Marcus, he lives in England, so he wait. How you solve that problem? He goes hits eBay and buys them. You know, he goes and buys the catalogs off eBay, or he goes to a uh, junk shop, and there they are. You know, so for him, it's not a problem. I'll just skip on over to Denver International Airport, hope they don't lose my luggage, and take the 12 or 14 hour flight to Old Blighty and then start from there. Yeah. I had that idea I wanted to pitch to Richard, which was a Node Central book. And so far, that's really just kind of, it's a sketches on a pad still. But as you guys say, the, what makes a game is not the crunch, it's the fluff text. The subtext, the history, the material, the culture, how it got there, and all that stuff like that. So I decided to take one node, like positive 10, and use the portal's entries as the jump-off point. To basically map it and put a picture on its front core. Here's a map, and here's a picture. You know, here's a circle with the prime. Here's a circle with the alt. Here's a circle with the system, and here's the sis- Here's a circle with the star, and then radiating out from those are lines that go to this is the title for for what that is and the page number. And then ha- and then take every entry that's for that node and expand them. Because it's basically just a description of what it looks like as soon as you step out the portal. You step through and you're in the middle of nowhere. You have to travel before you actually get somewhere before you actually can have your adventure. Yeah, I was going to turn every one of those little one paragraph, this is what it looks like when you blow it up to a page. Plot hooks? Yeah, there's going to be adventure seeds in the back. That you know to take you, okay, your, your person's kidnapped, they're taken from all portal one through all portal three and then off to the city of Zanzibar or something else, but expand every entry into a one pager, create some NPCs that would be important for that node, but also lay down the rules for the node, whether it's high tech, low tech, there's a barrier as in you're only allowed to steam tech and then that any tech above stops functioning or it's magical or non-magical, whether psionics is allowed and to what degree, to lay out the rules for that whole node, kind of do the work for somebody who's a GM and maybe they're getting started. That's kind of what I'm 
putting out there. And if anybody wants to take any other node out there and give it a try, give it a whirl, see what it looks like. I've been writing games in Fate and uh, Truth and Justice and Savage Worlds. I may run a game in Quags, but they all have one common feature. They have Fate points, Hero points, Bennies, Yum Yums. And I'm really, really bad at handing those suckers out. The players may do something that deserves it. I'm trying to remember, okay, when someone does something interesting, give them a fate point. Give them a yum-yum. Give them a Benny. That's the economy they live by is, you know, you need, you need that Benny. You need that fate point to be able to do something sometimes. Some games have actually done a cheat. I mean, I do that. I do this cheat myself, too. Triple uh, Ace Games came up with it for their uh, Pulp Adventures for Savage Worlds. It's called the uh, Combat Benny. I sort of adapted to the conflict Benny. Whenever there's a conflict, you get a Benny. It's a different color poker chip than the rest than your normal Bennies, and it only stays for the duration of the conflict. If you use it, great. If you don't, it comes back to me when the conflict's over. It's there so you have something to use, just so they don't feel like they're at the end of the rope. What happens? No one uses them. That one I really have to work on because that one is not just me. It's it's the players as well. And that's mine. Anyone else? I have my second one, really, which is that I have developed an assertive personality that I didn't have when I was a teen. Oh. So I have a tendency to, in life and in games to steamroller the other quiet people. So, And I have a tendency to pick player character types that are going to be in the action. If I can, I've, I've given up on... I tried some sometimes to do supporting role player character type ones, the non-combat types that they're there for the, the special events or they lend support, but I, I want to be in the thick of things. And, and if other people don't sp- speak up, then I'm there to play. <laughs> so I need to throttle back a bit. Oh, so my French Relief group was a refreshing difference then, wasn't it? Because everyone in that one was pretty much up front. I mean, it's my turn to talk now. Get You shut up. Uh, <laughs> Some. Yeah. If they weren't multitasking, uh, working on code or something else. Yeah. Uh, trust me, when I play with Todd, Todd likes to talk. But then again, I like to talk too. So it's, we're at odds who's going to get to talk at that point. <laughs> no, I... I'm fine with it because I if if what you got to say is interesting or you know for the game I'll I'll sit back and listen. It's it's not a a competition to to speak more or speak first. I I just want to be in on the action. I want to play the game. I want to get into it, and I don't want to sit on the sidelines and and wait for somebody else to go and and take the lead. Which sometimes when it's a over Skype game where you can't clue off body language that somebody else is ready to go or whatnot. Um, I'll steamroll or some people <laughs> and I kind of feel bad about that. Cause like I said, I came there to play and I mean, when I mean play, I mean, it's a group action. So that's kind of a personal resolution as far as face to face games. I don't have that locally. I checked out the role-playing game club at my campus, and I was significantly older than everybody there. So I think I will try the next um, local Denver con, either Genghis Con or Tacticon. We have two per year here. And try to drum up something that way. The current fad right now is the Game Lab, where you walk up and you basically get enough people together, they will then run a game. That's the that's when the current thing, uh, GameStorm, which I'm going to in March of this year, uh, they have a game lab where you can volunteer as a GM, and your your purpose is to sit and wait until enough players show up, and then you run a game. And that's a great way to meet people sometimes. 
I'll be honest, I'm a terrible GM. I know it from the story. I'm an awful GM. I get lost in the minutiae and small details and sort of the game and the storytelling slows down and bogs down. I'm fine at writing the stuff up and making the materials but running the game. Um, I get so fascinated with the small details that the game bogs down. So I'm horrible as a game master. His personal history for his first Victorian character topped out, I think, what, 2,000 words or more? Just a little background information. Yeah, it was about two and a half pages of type single space, of double space text. Yeah. Yeah. And he wasn't finished because he only got as far as what, uh, teenage, not even teenage, 12 years old. I got into the teens. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> His character's like 30 years old. <laughs> Maybe 18 years old when he first started the police force to explain how he became a police investigator. But yeah. <laughs> and the one for my chemist. My short one is the combat guy who I haven't really sat down because I, I got bored researching English noble families and lineages, which those characters are out there circling the world. You might see them in cons. If you sit down and play with Stephen Wallet. I passed on copies to him. Victorians, yeah. Always fun. Anybody have some personal gaming ones or is it all GM ones? Well, as I said, I don't play that much anymore. I think the last game I played in was the Saturday game I gave up to start running Coptics. Other than that, it was the one D20 modern game I played at Gen Con this past year. I, I GM about probably 98, 99% of the time. I just prefer game mastering to playing. And it's nothing against the game masters I've been with. Some of these people I've gamed you know, from anywhere from 5 to 25 years. So it's not that. It's just, I don't know, call it a god complex. It might just be the Aspie in me where I need to have that pattern of control okay i can do this this and this i just prefer game mastering so i don't really have any player resolutions because i just don't do it often enough to where any problem would really come up trying to think if i have any other gaming resolutions the game prep was my big one i'm starting to realize i tend to play the same characters so i'm actually got a chance to actually play in the game coming up and i realize okay don't play this character. Don't. It's uh, bulldogs. I was looking at two of the races. I, I can play this race. Or I can play this race. Then I started realizing. Wait a second. I always either play characters like these or characters like that. I need to play something completely different than what I've been playing lately. Then I looked at a third race. Ah, third. No. Wait a second. That's just a Kazin with a lion's mane. Okay. I need to look for something else now. Well, just randomize from the tables, John. Well, the thing is, if I ran around the table, there's a good chance I may end up with a character who I've played before. Basically, Bulldog, the races have certain types. Like Then you keep rolling until you find something different. Well, there's no random table. You pick one. No, I'm saying you randomize from the tables you have with personality, with age, with skills, with race, all that stuff like that. You can do that and just until you come up with something you've never played before, and that's the one you play. It used to be that when I would play a science fiction game, game I would always play an engineer. Because I figure I would like the system if I had fun playing an engineer. And, yeah, like the original Star Trek game, I didn't have any fun playing an engineer in that game. So, like, okay, nope, nope. Uh, did in Traveler, and I did in a modified version of D6 version of Star Trek. So, I guess it really depends on, on how the game, you know, treats all the characters. Yeah, you're not going to have fun playing a sailor in Hardwire Hinterland. No. 
unless you live in Etiwanga, that you get lots of fun playing there. Those of you who are haven't been paying attention, uh, Hardwire Hinterland, uh, there are giant carnivorous whales and squid between each of the islands that make up the world. So nobody who's a sailor is going to last very long out there. So you, you end up as a guy who's got these skills and something that's totally useless. So that's what I'm saying is that you, know, you want to make sure that the character you play is going to be useful in the setting that you've got. So, you know. I tend toward the crazy combat type or I, I end up playing the um, rogue, snarky rogue. And I'm going, okay, I, I, I want to do something out besides the, the, the crazy combat type and the snarky rogue. You know, so yeah, I'm going to have to really think of what kind of character I'm going to play next because I don't want to play the same thing I've been playing over and over and over again. I think this this is a generation thing for us guys because we started out with with Dungeons and Dragons, and if you played the Magic user, your game really sucked for several sessions until you built enough levels that your spells had an effect. Three point five until you get Fireball and Lightning Bolt, which is for a wizard fifth level. Those first four levels, you're like, okay, mm-hmm. I get a couple neat parlor tricks. Oh, look, invisibility that helps other people. Oh, this spell. Yeah, this helps other people. Oh, look, I'm fifth level. I'm, I'm a big shooter. I can do massive damage. You have to bribe people with free levels or snacks to get them to play the Magic User original. See, I totally disagree with you guys. I have played Magic Users in every campaign of D&D I've ever been in, and I think they rock. And I just think you guys don't think outside the box enough for them. That's all. My favorite character was in one of Richard's Dungeons, and uh, he got to, like, about sixth level. But he started first level, and he survived. And I, I think Richard was allowing cantrips at the time, so he had these little cantrip spells you could use. I made good use of them sometimes because you could use them all the time, you know, versus your much more effective spells. Light. Yeah. Of course, the most important thing, when you, once you learn how to use, how to cast a fireball, count squares in the dungeon before you cast it. Make sure that you're outside of the, of the blast radius. Your first henchman when you're a magic user is a shield bearer. They only forget it once, John. That's true. We're just trying to save you, the, save you the pain of learning it the hard way. It's just a sheet of paper, John. There's plenty of them in the book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Anyways, I would love to get into a game. My brother was running one, and I was playing an awesome dwarven cleric. He started another one, and I played the same awesome dwarven cleric. So I would really like him to go and continue one of the two campaigns he was running so that I could continue to play my awesome Dwarven Cleric. But otherwise, uh, my wife has already told me that my son is graduating in May from high school and my butt is hers every weekend. So, eh, not too much as far as me being a player. You don't want to game too much just because you do have other facets in your life. I mean, as I said, I'm running three campaigns And my girlfriend goes, okay, I know you're busy. I do realize there's time I'm going to have to cancel a game or two to go down to Toledo and visit her family or whatever. I know this going in, but she also respects enough to know, okay, I have this certain schedule, but I'm willing to compromise. See, it's that being in a relationship or marriage, you have to balance that if you are a, a hardcore gamer such as the four of us are. Peter, what resolutions do you have for the new year? All right, I have one that crops up from time to time as a game master, 
And that's one I like to call outsmarting the players. And that is where you generate some kind of clue or uh, some kind of thing in the mission that you are, are sure that the players are going to get. But it's too complicated. And it's kind of like one of those things where if you were to craft a riddle, if you knew the riddle to you, the answer is obvious. It's easy. You know, it's like, of course, you know, why can't you get this? But you got to remember that, that when you give your players a clue, they have no clue. They have no clue. They have no clue where the, where the answer lies or where to look or how to think. There's a million different directions. And you got to remember that, that each person pictures an adventure differently. All playing at the same table. We belong to the Subsidian Portal now. And we write adventure logs. So at the end of the week, we post a log of what, how we saw the adventure of the previous week. And it's funny to read other people's insights on that. Many times, they'll see the adventure completely different than you did. You might have a guy who, who sees the adventure as an action adventure where the other guy saw it as a, as a drama or maybe the third guy thought, saw it as a horror. So just in those perspectives, people are looking at the entire scope of the adventure maybe from different directions. So one guy is looking for the answer to your clue, and he may be thinking of it from a horror perspective. It's like, ooh, what kind of monster could that be? The clue has nothing to do with a monster because you wrote the adventure as a drama, and it's actually a very mundane clue. It's like, no, it's it's just a simple, you know, you should be able to get this. Um, but you got to be careful with that. I want to try and make sure that my clues are easy enough to find, and if not, that there is other things that they can rely upon, like hints, other hints that they can get. Perhaps you, you have a complex clue, but then you let them search online and look it up. Or you let somebody look through a set of books. Somebody gets in touch with you and provides some kind of clue that, uh, or some kind of hint to that clue that um, will, will push you in the right direction. And I've seen this happen in a, a number of movies recently. What they'll do is that they'll make the clue be reliant upon the person who actually created the thing that you need the clue for. If they give a riddle, then the answer is something related to, like, the guy's economist. It has to do with banking. If he's a scientist, it would have to do with physics. So knowing something about the person who actually created the puzzle or the trap or whatever it is to begin with should give you should inform your thinking about how to find a solution right absolutely so when you craft your clue that you want the players to have and, and by all means i'm not saying get away from clues clues are awesome and i think uh i think they're a great plot driver and i you know i've played a lot of games where there isn't enough clues you know in the adventure you're just being railroaded so you just go from this scene to that scene to the next scene and there is no clues hand it out that there's nothing you have to figure out you just do the mission I mean, that's fine too you know you don't want people having to, to, to always have to figure things out right but if, if the whole point of is for them to figure out the clues then it's really you want them to succeed right you do absolutely and you should never ever ever put a clue in that the adventure cannot go on if they don't solve it it should be harder for them maybe it takes longer maybe they don't get the full reward out of winning or, or or being able to you know being able to pursue it to the point of either win or lose but no clue should ever be so vital that if they don't get it it derails the adventure that is a failure on the gm's part if you are going to do what i said where you have clues that are based upon the person who actually created or who gave the riddle, then it's really important that you make that information about that person fully available and make it rich enough so that people can see it more than one way. If, for example, you might want to have 
uh, a person's life story or maybe writings about that person or talk about the deeds that they've done or it could even be limericks, especially if it's a clue, if it's a riddle. If the guy has published limericks online, that's a real hint. Right. And you can have a lot of fun with that, too, because then you get to foist off your favorite limericks on your players. You know, another thing you can do with, with something like that is before you create your really crafty clue, uh, you could go on Wikipedia or maybe not even just Wikipedia. Just go on the Internet. Go, on, you know, go into Google or whatever search engine you like and type in uh, something to do with that. So let's say you wanted them to find something or they have to go to the museum of natural history. That's where you want them to go. And you want this clue to get them there. Might be a good idea to go to their website and dig around and look around Google Maps and, and walk around and uh, or, or you know read articles about displays and stuff. And that's where you generate your clue from because now you have something they can tie it to. And if they get completely lost, you know, you might want to just pull out your laptop and say, Your character can research. Here, here's a computer, here's the clue. Type it in yourself, and it might lead them back to that. And then they would get a really good sense of satisfaction that they saw this clue all on their own, and it was a tough clue. Mm-hmm. And, and sometimes there's other ways around things like that, because which, which we've seen things like where they use some kind of a fluorescent device, and they can see which keys have been pressed the most. Right. And so instead of them figuring out the clues, you basically say, okay, here's a small set of numbers that you can brute force it if you really have to. Right. Yep. So that's where you get the multiple ways of solving the problem. Ultimately, the uh, if it's a Bureau 13 team, they could probably blow the door off. Right. Yeah. Everybody take your sneakers off. We need them. Right, right. <laughs> so I'm thinking the best way to do this is if you've, if you've put together, you've spent some time putting this clue together, you should just put it in your notes. If you're not you know, writing your own modules or whatever, if, you're just, if you just have notes, put it in your notes. Here's the clue. Here's the answer I'm looking for. Here are other answers I would accept. These can just be like light notes too. You could even say, if they don't solve the clue, this is what they'll need to do. Or if they don't solve the clue, this is these are hints I can give them. These are ways to get them to that clue. Otherwise, you know, don't don't create a crafty you know crafty little clue. But if you're going to, definitely put down some notes about what to do if they get it, don't get it, if they get close, how to get them closer, and in that way. Uh, I think there's a lot of reward to that. I mean, I, I have 20 years of role playing. Every time that we have solved a difficult clue, there is a really sense of satisfaction in that. Those are games you remember. And you definitely don't want to place it to where they make a single die roll and, oh, okay, I did the research. I know the answer. Right, right. Absolutely. Yeah. That negates all that sense of satisfaction. But a die roll could give you a hint. Absolutely. Yes, and that's what you should be doing, in my opinion. Yep, absolutely. All right, well, that sounds, that sounds good. Okay. All right, so number two on my list is allowing the wrong player to play the betrayer or traitor, as it were. Not traitor as in trading goods, but traitor as, in a, as a betrayer. This is from a game two years ago. We allowed one of the guys, or I think the game master set him up to do this, but he was not a great role player. The newest guy to our group, so he wasn't as ingrained and played with us as long. No, nowhere near as long, as a matter of fact. And he just, he just wasn't a great player. So he had this opportunity to, uh, to, to play the betrayer to the group. And we were fine with that. I mean, we didn't know it. We didn't know it until later, until like almost to the end of the adventure. Things, these clues <laughs> started, started coming out that this guy was, was betraying us. And 
it would have been really cool. It was set up neat, and it would have been really cool if he'd have played it properly, but he didn't. Uh, he totally destroyed it and negated every bit of cool, sucked the life out of the whole thing. <laughs> it really did. It was it a was very, very, very anticlimactic end to the campaign. Wow. We were really disappointed. We played that campaign for a year. Very, it would have been so awesome if he had done it right. The campaign could have ended on a huge upswing, like a huge big bang, you know? I wasn't game mastering this one, but if I were to, I would be very, very, very careful about ever allowing that in a campaign to begin with. And if I did, it would have to be with one of my strongest players. A guy who got it, you know? And I would have to say, this is the feel I'm going for. This is what I'm looking to do. If you're willing to go down this road with this character, realize you're, you know, you're probably he's probably going to get killed because the party's going to go against him, or he's going to wind up having to kill everybody else, or or whatever. It's it's not going to be pretty. Is my point. Usually, when you do this, you're getting the person to agree for his character to get, in some way, seriously um, uh, damaged. Right, right. And there may be a level of redemption. It may it may even lead to him being able to redeem that character during the gameplay, and it could lead to some really good story twists and stuff this could this could be the kind of thing that makes a game extremely memorable right in a good in a very positive way you got to be really careful though and you got to i mean you can you can only give that to one of your strongest players right right for where a meller takes over uh, a party member and uh, all of a sudden he starts eating all his meat raw and he starts doing all kinds of dangerous things that he normally wouldn't do because he knows that he regenerates but the character shouldn't. Will you start acting out of character with the very person who's supposed to be very trustworthy? Right. Going against your type and, and stuff like that just because you are betraying somebody. Yeah? The thief who never steals anything, but as soon as he steals something from the party, he starts acting suspicious. Right. Right. Yep. But somehow the player wants to get caught, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's funny because, you know, this wasn't a Frenchworthy campaign, so it wasn't a Meller. But that's a perfect, that's a perfect, perfect example that is absolutely right on the head. You get to a point where you're one of the players. You might say to them, hey, look, the situation happened. You're going to get caught up. I really want to do this with the campaign. I want to have a Meller infiltrate the group, infiltrate the party and, and you know, IDAT or whatever. Uh, would you be willing to sacrifice your character to bring that into the game? So, in essence, it's like what you're telling him is, is this Meller killed your character and has become him and replaced him. Mm-hmm. Fun for him. I mean, imagine that. You you get to play a Meller. And, Bruce, we've done that uh, with that one adventure. And, man, I'll tell you, it is very – it's a fun. It's a lot of fun. But at the same time, it, it's hard. I mean, it's you want to integrate with the group and you can't get detected because if you do, man – they're going to mow you down as fast as they can. You guys aren't in my campaign, but in my campaign, we had some situations where there were some outside groups that we've talked about where there's going to be in- special interest groups that are going to want to use the fringe paths and other types of things for their own purposes. And I told one of the players, I said, you know, you've been contacted by somebody and they want you to do this. First, it was like they're willing to pay you, but then he didn't like that. They said, okay, well then, you know, uh, you know, your second cousin once removed, we're watching him. Get what, get what I'm saying? And right. so he, he felt like he was under duress to do this, and he had to act, you know, try to act normally, but at the same time, he knew that ultimately, at the end, he was going to try to steal some MacGuffin or whatever that the party was trying to bring back to Earth and somehow hand it off to somebody else. Right. And that's hard to do that without starting to act suspicious and start doing things like, let me be the one who carries it. I really think I should be the one who carries the MacGuffin. Right, right. 
And you know, Bruce, it's it's easier to do these days because we have all the technology that we have. You can text message with the game master when you want to do something, and it can be completely invisible to the players. No one else needs to know. You can pass notes back and forth easily with, with a uh, game master. Plus, you can get online. You can email them. You can say, all right, next week when this happens, what I'm going to do. Uh, whereas, you know, previously, you know, 20 years ago, it was much harder to do. You'd say, hey, can I talk to the game master on the side? Privately. Yeah, and everybody knows, oh, here we go. Or you pass a note to the GM, and you've never passed a note to the GM before. Right, exactly. And it was like, what's up? What's up, right, right. Yeah. Because he could be getting he could be getting a text message from anyone, right? And matter of fact, as we all know, getting text messages from anyone is a constant problem in role playing games. True. Here's where you actually get to use it for the benefit of the game. Right. Right. Absolutely. So yeah, that I mean that that's a simple resolution. I don't think we need to go into too much detail on that. I think it kind of explains itself. Just be careful with that. Just be careful who you give that to. So my last one, uh, and we've talked about playing characters who were... Troublesome. Troublesome characters. Okay, so this last one, difficult. Yeah. This one is not playing a character who's too difficult. I have been guilty in the past of playing off-the-wall characters. While it's fun, you know, sometimes it's, it's, it takes away from everybody else's fun at the table because you've got this this character that is very difficult to deal with. The other players don't, you know, the other players sitting at the table don't want to kick your character out of the group because we're all friends and we're all trying to play the game together. But if your character is really difficult and making an adventure hard, like let's say you play a character who uh, is, is a, you know, ex-military or whatever, and he's, you know, super set in his ways and super stubborn. I mean, stubborn to the point where he will start a fist fight if you don't go his way. That's not a, it's not like a, a weird character, either, is it? but that is a very troublesome character. It's very hard to do an adventure with a character like that because it's like, hey, man, I think, um, I think we should use diplomacy on this one because we don't really want to get in a fight. And he's just like, no, we go in there, we kick their butts, and we, you know, we take names, and we, we get our answers. Like, yeah, but you know, this doesn't really warrant that, and we could get caught. Blah, blah, blah. No, that, I'm, just, I'm not doing that. Or more likely, he's, he's just simply going to go and do whatever he's going to do regardless of what you all agreed to do before you went in. Yes. We've all seen that. Right, and that and that's a simple one. That that's just that's just a character who's stubborn. But I mean, one time I we were playing uh, we were playing vampire. I was playing this vampire who was like mental, like he had he, mentally ill. Like his transformation had really messed him up. As a matter of fact, he didn't like have a coffin in a house and all that kind of stuff. Every night before the sun came up, he would break out his shovel and dig a hole and sleep in the dirt. But that was just like one little weird thing about him. He was off the wall. He was absolutely insane. And it was very, very difficult for the other players when I played him. You know, and and I feel bad about that because it was kind of like, you know, I made everything tough for everyone else and everyone's trying to have a good time. Um, But but those characters, you know, I'm going to try and stay away from. I I don't mind having a little, being a little weird on my own, but but not too weird. Not at the the risk of, of screwing up everybody else's good time. Right. So that's it. Those are my resolutions for this year and henceforth. <laughs> so what do you think your chances are of actually succeeding with them? I think they're pretty good. I think they're pretty good. Um, I've gotten pretty good at making characters who are – let's take the last one. Characters who are um, who are a little off the wall, a little different, a little you – know, my own little twist on them. But not, not so weird as in you know, they'll, they can't be reasoned with fairly easily you know it's like i want to do it this way oh man and he'll fight for his case but then they're like all right fine we'll do it that way uh or you know he's not 
trying to uh, drink the blood out of cows every time they stop at some, you know, go past the dairy. Stop, I got to go drink the blood of this cow. And I'm not going to play a character like that. Good, good. The worst case I ever saw of, of what you're talking about was at a convention where this guy wanted to bring in his own character. Initially, I said, okay. <laughs> the problem was is that he had this enormous backstory for his character. So he had reasons, and I'm putting quotes here, air quotes, reasons for everything he did. But he also decided his character was reticent and never talked to anybody. Mm. So he, you have this guy who's literally doing stuff during the adventure. I go over and I open this desk. I look through it. I shut the door, uh, desk and I come back to the group. All right. What were you doing over there? He, I, I refuse to answer. Right. Okay. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, and, I, and I'm just rolling my eyes. I'm saying, you know, we only have four hours here, buddy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> which, is, which is why I never let people bring their own characters into a, a convention game. It was somebody who had played in my convention games probably for the last five years. Oh, boy. And so it's just, he just got this wild hair, and, and I was like, okay. I mean, I thought, I thought I could trust him, as you said. The, the wrong person to be the betrayer. Sometimes right. the, you know, there's the wrong person to bring in a character. Allowing the wrong person to be the betrayer, that's no problem. I know who my players are that can handle that at this point. And I'm not really game mastering at the moment. I'm, I'm on the player end of it for now. So that shouldn't be an issue. I do like to, to run adventures in between. So we'll, we'll swap up. So we're playing in the campaign. And then I'll say, hey, I'll run, the, I'll run an adventure next week. Uh, that shouldn't be too much of an issue. It should be pretty easy to avoid. And the outsmarting the players. Well, that if you're going to game master ever and you're going to use – an adventure that you've crafted yourself, that is always going to be an issue, and it's going to be something I'm going to have to, you know, try and make sure that I don't do. It's 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 tough though. That's going to be the toughest of them all because I mean, how do you know when you've made a clue too hard? Ask your spouse. No, I can't ask my spouse. <laughs> she's completely uninterested in that. I'll ask one of my friends. <laughs> if you say something to her and she's like, "That ah, doesn't make any sense," it may be a hint that you've gone too far. Ask your daughter then. Well, God, yeah, she's five. She, she'd be, yeah. She's probably smarter than we are. Yeah, probably, probably. But I do have a friend that I that we used to role play with, but for you know multiple reasons, he doesn't he doesn't game with us anymore. He just doesn't have time. So it's something I could run by him and, and see if he gets it or if he has any clue. When I'm, if he looks at me like I got three heads, I'm like, okay, all right, I know what I got to do. So yeah, I think uh, I think I could be pretty successful at that. Well, thanks, everybody, for joining us for this talking about the things we want to improve. I know everybody out there wants to improve, and I throw a challenge out to every one of you, all of our listeners. I challenge you to get into at least one of the games that we produce for TriTech Games. I know some of you people out there listen to the podcast because you think we think about things in a different way, and we appreciate you all listening, but we really would like you to play. So please take us up on our offer to run demos. All of us is offered to run demos over Skype for anybody who wants them. Get your friends together. At least call us up and let us run one game of whatever game floats your boat for you from our catalog and see if maybe it galvanizes an interest to actually move forward and play a continuing campaign of one of our games because we'd love to hear about your experiences with our games. So I challenge every one of you to go and take that as, as one of your New Year's resolutions. Just drop us a line on Facebook saying, hey, I want to have a demo. This is what I'm available. And I'm sure one of our hosts will be able to run a game for you. But we will have more for you 
Uh, we have lots of more podcast topics planned for 2014. We will have something that we hope is awesome, and because it's certainly awesome for us to do this for you. But you're going to have to wait because this is all we're doing for now. So we'll have more for you next week. But until then, this is Bruce Sheffer saying there are a million, million worlds out there. So go explore them. This is John Ryer saying keep your powder dry and keep those cards and letters coming in. This is Blix. Don't hate the game. Hate the players. And this is Paul. When you remove the pin, Mr. Grenade is no longer your friend. And this is Trav. There's a reason why it's called gaming. It's for having fun. Yo, brothers. This was the Tri-Tech Games Podcast. You know the drill. It's protected under the Creative Commons License 3.0. No commercial reproduction, no derivatives, and sucker, you best attribute this to the folks at Tri-Tech Games. And if you don't, We'll be having your sorry butts, cause we're some bad mothers. Hi, this is Trav of the Travcast, Hour 3 of Blind Wolf's Rubber Room Association on DementiaRadio.org, Tuesdays, 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern.